from the former Convent of the Good Shepherd overlooking Inwood Hill Park in New York City. Welcome to Inwood Artworks On Air. It's where you meet musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes that make their home what we affectionately call Upstate Manhattan. I'm your host, Aaron Sims, and today we welcome actor Jeffrey Hardy. Jeffrey trained at Lambda and has had an international career as an actor. He was a member of New Shakespeare Company of San Francisco and worked in London's West End in repertory theater in UK, off-Broadway, and toured in the US, Austria, Germany, Sweden, and his native Australia. With Dame Judi Dench, he was a founding director of the Royal Theatre Company. Donald Sinden's production of The Importance of Being Earnest with Wendy Hiller, Brian Forbes' production of The Living Room with Michael Dennison and Dulcie Gray, Tim Luscombe's production of Noel Coward's Semimond with Judy Dench, and Tim Luscombe's production of The Browning Version and Harlequinade with Paul Eddington and Dorothy Tutton. In the Noel Coward world, he was a close personal friend of Joyce Carey, Joan Hurst, and Graham Payne. He has taught Shakespeare for the actor in London, Australia, and New York, and is adjunct professor at the New York Institute of Technology. He currently lives in New York and is working as a barrister and a attorney at law. He is married to Chantreuse Shanafar, well known for her interpretation of the Noel Coward songbook. We're going to talk to him about his career on stage and so much more. But first, let me welcome you, Jeffrey, to Inwood Artworks On Air. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank you. And, and it's nice to be here in Inwood on this very lovely day. Thank you. Thank You're, you for having me. And it sounds like I'm in very august company. <laughs> me. <laughs> Absolutely. Where else would you want to be around? I mean, come on. It's all about you today, my friend. Let oh, me dear. tell you. Well, thanks for being here. Um, and there's there's many things that I admire about you, um, but right clear off the top, uh, aside for your dashing good looks, of course, uh, would I, I would mention is your apparent love for language. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just to review some of the authors in your bio, you know, Shakespeare, Wilde, Coward, uh, I could be happy making a career out of solely performing the work of those authors, uh, and you did for many years. Uh, and I can only ask, how did immersing yourself in their worlds affect the direction of your life? Right. Well, that's that's a that's a very good question, because at school I was subjected, and I use the word subjected <laughs> purposely to to a lot of the classics, and I didn't like them much. They were they were rather alienatingly taught, until one teacher, and we've all had these wonderful mentor teachers in our life, uh, said, "So don't go home and read uh, the first two acts of Hamlet. We're going to read it aloud." tomorrow in class. And that was the approach that kind of lifted all of these wonderful words that we're privileged to, to say uh, off the page. And just to leap forward to being an actor, these wonderful words. And if you're in a play, whether it's Shakespeare, Coward, Shaw, any of these plays, you'll often find the words of the play recited in life. Uh, so it's it's Hamlet, really, the, holding the mirror up to, to nature. So those words spring into your life and uh, take on a whole meaning of their own uh, if you're introduced to them well or if you discover them in some way through your own, through your own efforts. A good teacher, of course, is the best, the best place. Or it doesn't have to be active teaching. It can be going to see a wonderful production of Nicholas Nickleby or right. Hamlet with a, an illuminating cast 
uh, that's that's sort of the best education and the best way to get passionate and involved yeah. in in that language and those ideas and the universality of it and the, yeah the esoteric of it and the, the beauty so you started from the formal education aspect because sometimes people see a Nicholas Rickleby or they say that and then they're caught in a production they go mm -hmm. oh, I want to do that but you actually started with the words and started with hearing the language yeah uh, initially uh, yeah initially, but of course yeah. in fact I had never Nicholas Nickleby I had not seen it uh sorry I had not read it until mm -hmm. I uh, saw it and then of course I went back to it but in fact I went to the very first night of that in London Roger Reed's uh, right? yes, yes the Royal Shakespeare Company did it and it had been a talked about production and it was hugely longer then than it ended up being. But I think we went in at 7 on the first night and came out at 12.45. Uh, and that sounds like torture, but it went like two, two and a half hours at the most. It's, it was so quick, it was so engaging, so elevating, so moving, made you reach deep down inside. Yeah. Uh, and and um, then the next night it was... Uh, probably about an hour shorter, it went to about 11.30, but the day between disappeared with excitement to go back and see the second half of it, and it got crap reviews. They hated it, and they said, too long, da 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 da, -da. And there was a, this is a well-known story in, in the British theatre anyway, and Michael Billington, uh, who I think is the uh, critic for The Observer still, uh, said to his fellow critics, you need to reassess this. This is a major theatrical achievement and the production qualities of it, the illumination of Shaw, the performances, and they did exactly that. The critics came back. I think it was whittled down perhaps by about an hour for each night, but the critics came back and, and said, we retract our previous... <laughs> reviews and which is, is unheard of yes and this is a, this is a major achievement it's uh, even more unheard of having a critic review other critics yes <laughs> well indeed yeah 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 <laughs> it's true uh but that's the kind of excitement that you know for those of us who are still passionate about theater which are many um you know it's seeing productions like that it's almost like you're, uh, you're you're chasing those experiences again in the theater to have again. Like mm -hmm. you, you have these very few talked about illuminating performances that inform you, and and yeah. then you end up going to see. You know, for every one of those, you see a hundred pieces of theater that you could probably forget about. Yeah. Uh, but there's those there's one or two pieces you see every couple years that come yeah. along. Yeah. Um, and these works just um, they fill you, right? I totally agree with you. And in fact, I. I I don't know if other people are like this. I suspect you are. If somebody says, what are the great things that have happened in your life, you'll talk about having great parents or, or going to great school, having a great job, right. or a great partnership. Uh, but I would include in those probably three or four of those wonderful uh, productions that I've seen that you uh, they get tattooed into your soul and heart. Yeah. And you have them have them forever. Yeah. Sim similar, with f some films are the same, but sure. of, of course, the excitement of seeing something live is uh, is very special. Yeah. Uh, How about as an actor? Can you? I, I, I rattled off a few of your credits. Um, what productions can that are tattooed on your heart? Okay. Uh, well, um, 
The ones where I played big parts. <laughs> <laughs> but enough about you, Jeffrey. <laughs> uh, so I have fondness for As You Like It, Shakespeare's As You Like It, which I, I played. Uh, I played when I was a very young man in it uh, for the new Shakespeare Company in San Francisco, and I think I was one of the rustics um, in it and, and one of the Forest of Arden folk. Yeah. But I did play Orlando, which is a good part for me. It's a good part. At, at very thankless role, but a good part. It is, yes. Um, I did play that in at the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry in a, in a rather interesting and pretty distinguished production. So that's certainly one that I have a fondness for. But very often it's, it's the company you keep. So you mentioned I did a tour of, well, produced in London and first, first off with Paul Eddington and Dorothy Tewton, who probably aren't known in this Not country. in the States very well, unless you're, I would say our parents' generation would know them more than right. our generation. Right. Well, Paul would be best known in this country for playing the, in Yes, Prime Minister. But he was a very, uh, oh, good heavens, a long-term career he'd had yeah. working at the National Theatre and in the West End and a lot of television work. So that tour was particularly meaningful for me, going having produced it in London and then being cast in the tour and touring Australia. So all yeah. my relatives who, who used to shake their head in despair at Jeffrey's off in London in the theater, <laughs> right? Uh, were able to come and see it, and my schoolmates, and, yeah. and all of that. And of course, not only were they particularly wonderful pieces of theater and writing, but to be in a company that's led by, by well, not the fact that the actor is distinguished, but such a, a kind and accomplished actor as Paul was, was very special. And there's a little validation in that too, right? Because, um, I mean, you didn't come from like a family of acting, like, a, like an acting troupe family. No, um, right. I, you, I you come know. from a from suburban Aussies. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So um, I'm the, I'm of the same ilk. Like I'm the only artist of any kind in my family either side. Mm. And so you know, you're going to become, you're going to do what? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so to come back and to show, uh, say, um, <laughs> perhaps the, the quality, we'll say, of of you know, there's a bit of validation. Uh, I think mm. with that, um, sure. of, of, of being able to come in with a production like that and saying, see, I wasn't crazy after all these yeah. years. Well, well, I'm still well, crazy, I'm still just, crazy, not, crazy the, just yeah. not the kind of crazy you thought I was, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. No, validation is important. I, I, don't, I think when you're a young actor, and it's, it's probably changed somewhat now because I think so many people think it is a quick route to... A fortune and fame and that sort of thing, and, right. and of course, you—that is, is the reverse—is absolutely the truth. That yeah. it's a quick route to poverty and. and, <laughs> and that should be the title of your autobiography: <laughs> a "Quick Route to Poverty," uh, Jeffrey Hardy's story. But uh, but as you progress through your career, even, even if I didn't start out that way, but even if you do, I think you your wisdom uh, makes you realize that your your well, it sounds corny, serving literature, serving serving the arts, and uh, illuminating storytelling and, yeah. and improving people's lives and lots and giving them perspective. Yeah. Well, speaking of storytelling, you're also very involved in Noel Coward Society, correct? Yes. Um, yes, I am. Um, and it's a, a curious connection to that, which is a, an interesting story. If you'll if you'll bear with me, I'll make it well, short. Well, I, I mentioned your bio particularly because there's three very interesting people that uh -huh. were very close 
to yeah. Mr. Coward that you had close relationship with as well. Correct, yes. Yeah. So when I was, um, my first job out of um, Lambda, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, was at uh, Repertory Theatre in Farnham, Surrey, which is a, a small town just outside of London. And it was at a theatre called the Redgrave Theatre, which was named for uh, Sir Michael Redgrave, right. who was one of the great actor very, likes of... Very big family of yeah. actors. And um, I was in a production of um, Alan Bennett's 40 Years On, and I've been in a few productions there. So these were rather unique days. These days are gone. Repertory theatres don't really exist in, in the UK anymore. Uh, so I was very lucky to capture that. And that was really the, the background for so many actors in the UK that you'd get cast in a series of shows. You'd mm -hmm. have one week rehearsal, and then you'd be yeah. playing a lead. Then you'd be playing a, a spear carrier right. in the next production. So that was training beyond training and a wonderful orientation to the, the world of the theatre and really the, the um, stamina you need to have to, to be an actor, uh, to be a busy actor. Uh, anyway, so uh, Sir Michael and Lady Redgrave, who are Vanessa's and Lynn and Corrin's mum and dad, they live nearby in, in, in Odium, a place not far, and they used to come to the productions, usually the opening night. And uh, so I was in Alan Bennett's 40 Years On, which is set in a British public school, which means a private school. And it was like a speech night or a graduation ceremony. And we were told that uh, the Redgraves were in that night. And the first entrance, I was playing the head boy, like the school captain. Uh, and it was a nice big part. We made our entrance through, through the auditorium. And the lead actor, who was playing the headmaster of the school, principal of the school, said, now, the Redgraves are sitting on row Q on stage right, and we're going to enter through there. And I'd suggest it would be nice for you, because we greet all of the audience as if they're parents of the students who are being represented on the stage, if you go to him and say, um, good evening, Mr. Crocker Harris, it's very nice to have you with us. And didn't mean anything to me, really. Uh, but I was a little nervous at approaching an actor night. And um, so dutifully, I went to, at the beginning of the play as we're coming into the auditorium, and I said, good evening, Mr. Crocker Harris. It's very nice to have you with us. And uh, Sir Michael, within three seconds, squirted me with tears. It affected him. It was... and. I then found out that uh, Andrew Crocker Harris is the lead character in the Browning version, the play I just mentioned about touring in Australia with. So I didn't. There's a funny circularity right. projection there. Yeah. And afterwards, um, uh, Sir Michael said, I'd like to meet the young man who played the, the head boy and uh, asked the director. And sure enough, I was invited to sit and, and talk with them and have, had a drink with them. And uh, he was very m more interested in me than I pretended I was interested in him. And he was intrigued by the fact that I'd, I was Australian uh, because he'd had a long association with Australia and knew several actors. And he said, I, every day, I wonder if you could try and find out. And he rattled off three or four names uh, of people and, um, and let me know 
uh, how they are and give them my greetings. I, they were not people I knew, but they were people I knew of. And um, I did some research at Australia House in the Who's Who in Theatre, which is a fairly thin <laughs> yeah. volume. Shouldn't be, but it is a fairly thin volume in those days. And I was able to report back, and we became friends. I became friends of uh, Michael and Rachel, and they invited me down to their house. And uh, he was, well, they were in the early 70s, I, I guess, then. So this is 1980. Yeah, 1979. Uh, anyway, to lead on to Noel Coward, Michael had a, and I call him Michael, it sounds offensive, but I, I remember after I got to know him well, he, I said to him, um, Sir Michael, what did you think of? And he said, Jeffrey, don't call me Sir Michael. He said, just Michael is fine. Uh, <laughs> and he said, I remember uh, uh, Cyril Cusack saying that um, the only trouble with getting a knighthood is that you get this thing, what's called a surcharge, <laughs> attached to it, and everything costs you double, and people give you deference you don't deserve. Just call me Michael. And um, so, But Michael had a secretary called Joan Hurst, who he used to share with Noel Coward. And um, as he, well, as Joan used to put it herself, I used to, uh, Noel, I'd have Noel in the morning, and Michael would do me in the afternoon. Poor <laughs> choice of words. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, by this time, Coward had died. He died in 1973, but Joan remained the secretary to the Coward estate uh, until her death, which was not until the early early 2000s. And we became great buddies. And um, Joan, uh, uh, well, she opened a, an amazing world up to me, and she was tremendously good company. Uh, she was, by that time, in her mid-70s, I guess, too. And uh, I was... Well, I was unofficially a spy for the Noel Coward estate because I I was delegated to go off and see productions, and not only see productions in a, a, when they're out of town and give my view on whether they were suitable to come into town or if they were well done or who to watch as a director or actors, um, but also to see if there are any rogue productions that weren't authorized in terms of uh, sure. uh, copyright being and royalties being being paid. So uh, through that, I kind of was lucky enough to move into this kind of ch charming world and got to know the Joyce Carey, uh, Judy Campbell, uh, so these people who were Coward's leading ladies, and ultimately got to know Graham Payne, who was Coward's uh, partner, life partner, and heir to his estate, and I was fortunate enough to be invited out to the house and stay in the house in Switzerland on a couple of occasions. Wow. And and what such a charmed life. I remember one one time, I can tell you so many things about <laughs> about the, that time and the, the charmingness of it. But I remember one day when I was visiting, Graham said, we're going, we're going to lunch today. It's going to be a bit of a drive. And... Uh, Joanne was most straightforward, humble, kind, not a, in any way a grand man, um, South African originally, and was one of Coward's juvenile leads. 
And he says, are we going to Audrey's today for lunch? I said, okay, we're going to Audrey's now. <laughs> Iron a shirt. And uh, anyway, we drove off, and it was became apparent it was Audrey Hepburn's house. We were, oh my gosh. We were going to, which was a, a couple of hours, almost a couple of hours drive away. And uh, so there I was, all of what would I have been, uh, 33, I guess then, um, going to meet and visit Audrey Hepburn, and um, astounding <laughs> for me. We kind of became friends, and people say to me, tell me about her, and I think people, when you are fortunate enough to meet charismatic, wonderful, perhaps um, celebrated people, people always expect you to be able to tell uh, snappy anecdotes about them or memorable things that they said, and that's very often not the case. Uh, Audrey was most elegant. She was, uh, this was, so 1988. Uh, she was soon to become the am uh, Amnesty Ambassador, and then, unfortunately, she died in, I think, 1993, so I mm. met her and got to know her a bit towards the end of her life. And I can't tell you anything uh, anecdotal, anecdotally wonderful or uh, catchy that she said, but other than that she was um, most wonderful and kind, elegant, warm, warm person. Uh, so, yes, so the coward world was a rather interesting time for me. I remain involved, um, uh, have kept that connection, and of course a lot of that world then, and there are not many people left. I didn't ever meet coward, yeah. but there are not many people who actually met Coward left. And it's strange, too, um, just bringing it back towards um, generational. Um, I mean, here we are. It's it's now, the clock has struck 2023, mm -hmm. um, and you're talking about the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to me and you, it's and to many of our listeners here, uh, it seems like it was just yesterday, for, but you do the math, it's a generation or two it ago, is. and... Um, you're not seeing Noel Coward in America produced very often unless it's probably at a larger regional theater or a very low community theater, someone doing private lives perhaps, or maybe Blythe Spirit. Uh, yeah. You're not, you're not going to get um, Hay Fever. You're not going to get a lot of the, all the beautiful one acts he wrote uh, or 10 minute plays. They call them these days. I think the past 20, 30 years got 10 minute plays. Um, you don't have, uh, you don't see the vortex. You don't see a lot of the, uh, um, the ones that kind of put him on the map, and you and you rarely hear about any of the, you know, the musical productions he was mm. a part of. Um, and so you have like the Michael Redgrave, Sir Michael Redgrave generation, where it was very commonplace to see a coward play on the West End, if yeah. not two or three every year. Yeah. Um, you're lucky to get one on the West End or Broadway uh, every four or five years yep. uh, now, which is because, um, and it kind of, kind of segues me into a question about contemporary acting these days and the contemporary theater and contemporary training. Um, because um, you, my friend, is what 
I would say are uh, oh, the industry would call uh, an actor's actor, uh, very well regarded within the industry. Um, you're even saying yourself, you're you're being deputized to go, you know, suss out other productions, and so there's a quality and mirth to, to be able to do that. Uh, but what is your take on today's contemporary theater, and 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 do you feel today's actors are built on to take on such roles? Like- yeah, interesting. I'll just go back to something I I said to. Redgrave, um, uh, so this would have been late 70s, perhaps early 80s, and I remember saying to him, and it was kind of a gauche question, really. I said to him, so your your circle, which was Olivier, Gilgood, Vivian Lee, uh, you know, Peggy Ashcroft, Ralph Richardson, um, will they be reproduced uh do we have the great personalities the great leaders of the theater as as you had and he said and it's a quote and i cannot tell you who who it's from but he said well i i think as so and so said um each generation thinks it's drunk the last of the wine and ping that was very meaningful and uh, he said and look around at uh, the people who we can go and see at Stratford or in the West End now, we can go and see um, Ian McKellen, Judy Dench, Alan Howard, Peter McHenry, mm-hmm. Albert Finney, Tom right. Courtney, rattled off these names. So yeah. um, by no means, and just to pick up that, I think by no means ha- have things got worse because there are very wonderful, very fine performers out there. Um I I think there's probably a slightly less regard for the classics. I think actor training, from what I know about, and I have kind of kept involved in the actor training world uh, through serving on the Lambda board here in America and other like organizations. I think the training is very often film and television oriented, now rather than theater oriented and i heard recently i don't know if it's true that they some of the major drama schools even in the uk don't teach voice for theater i i haven't verified that seems yeah it seems preposterous yes exactly um but i mean you're a performer you know as well as i that Vocal technique is quite different for film and absolutely, and, and, and your breathing and, too. And TV, yeah. um, but uh, if you've got that wonderful foundation, right, and you can be heard, uh, heard easily, yeah. and you have range, you have an interesting timbre to your voice and and quality and um, some flexibility to it, right. and you're not easily exhausted or hoarse. <laughs> uh, that that's a wonderful foundation. So I. If it's so that voice training, which is the very, very fundamental key part, apart from the imagination and dis- other disciplines, physical disciplines, um, I'd lament if that, if that has fallen by the way. But I, I mean, I see, it used to be the case that a lot of stage actors couldn't do film and TV very well. I think... I see the reverse now that um, film and TV actors can very often do stage very well. Well, aside from distinguished acting classics, um, 
and other you know contemporary work you've done. You've taught Shakespeare at a great variety of places. And um, to kind of further the theme here, um, I, I would love to take this opportunity to, uh, if you wouldn't mind, I'd uh, love it if you would share your talent by sharing a short passage with our listeners from uh, a selection of your choice from one of your favorite Shakespeare plays. Okay, well, um, as it happens... I have something. How about that? <laughs> so I, I had a choice, but I, I, I think I'll settle on the one which I feel most, most comfortable on. So um, it's 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 a rather well known piece, but uh, it's enjoyable and it's nice to be reminded of it all the time. And it's Jaques in in As You Like It. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first, the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, and then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover, Sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly, with good cape on lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise sores and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose, well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big, manly voice turning again towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange, eventful history, his second childishness and mere oblivion sans teeth sans eyes sans taste sans everything awesome thank you so much sure. greatly appreciate you sharing that Brings you back. I actually did that show many, many, many a year ago as oh, well. Who were um, you? Well, I was far young, um, but to play the part. But apparently, you know, when you're doing the rep system, you're doing two other shows, and they put you in this one. I was Duke Senior of all oh, pe of, of all people uh, uh, because dude. of my stature, uh -huh, and they could. Me. And of course, I was. Um, another thing you don't do very much these days: put old age makeup on actors, mm -hmm. um, and and beards and mustaches and. Um, and speaking of all that stuff, so it just, it just doesn't get, you usually cast a person who's 
60 or 70 years old these days who can who has the but thing is you have to have the endurance to do the role right right so nowadays uh, we, we paint the lines no, out rather than yeah, paint, painting them on yeah well that's yeah for for us we have to watch out and you know yeah a lot of uh, a lot of shiny base some uh, to, keep, <laughs> to keep it going there but um what a wonderful passage and um uh it's so significant um a People don't realize that's from a comedy. If you if you, if you didn't mm. know, it's from As You Like It, as he said. It's a it's a comedy, um, and uh, and Jayquees. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the context of Jayquees for a second? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I think Shakespeare, they think Shakespeare played Jayquees actually. Yeah. Uh, Shakespeare was an actor, as, as you you all likely know, um, but he was a a rather world weary. Yes. Uh, cynical man, and he was sort of the sage, I suppose, as young Orlando uh, is out an outcast from his home, right? Uh, sort of on the passage to manhood, I suppose, and falls in love in the forest of Arden with uh, Rosalind, who's disguised as Ganymede, right. and Jacobes is his cynical sage accompaniment, and right. uh, uh, yeah. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't have the last word in the play. Another character with the same name called Jacques, right? <laughs> the brother Jacques, who <laughs> brother comes Jacques out of nowhere. Has the last word in the it's play. It's one of those tremendous endings that yeah. you know everyone. Everyone goes home happy, except for maybe, <laughs> except for maybe Jayquees. Everyone goes home happy. Uh-huh. Uh, reminds you of Malvolio not going home happy in Twelfth Night. Exactly. But um, but yes. Uh, well, uh, your much older colleague Judy Dench. At 88, is still churning out work. Oh, amazing! Um, yes. uh, being such a young pup in comparison, um, it leads me to ask you: aside from your law work, mm-hmm. um, uh, what interests you now to pursue in this phase in your life and career? Uh, all right. Well, um, so I'm heading towards 70, almost there. Um, I, I, the life has been utterly. Charmed and charming, uh, not any great tragedies, personal tragedies in my life, um, ups and downs as we all have. I have a great joy in my life. Uh, in that my my uh, wife is a wonderful performer and singer herself. I take pleasure, enormous pleasure in her success and hearing her and seeing her, her navigate the performing world. But I also have a an eight-year-old son, which so I'm an old dad. Uh, I'm always mistaken for his grandfather when I <laughs> drop him off somewhere, and it doesn't offend me at all. I'm, <laughs> I, but I became a dad again. I have a daughter who's 32. I became a dad again at 60, and uh, I cannot tell you the great joy I I can feel at any minute of the day when I think about that and his achievement and his his clarity of vision of of the world and his his talent too he has he has some talent and we i don't think he wants to be a an actor which is rather gratifying he did have his debut um stage debut recently playing tiny tim in a christmas carol and he sang rather beautifully uh silent night and uh, tiny tim has only two lines and the, the line is the same for each one, each of them. It's an, and may God bless each and every one of us, or something like that. And I said, and they occur one at the end of the play and one halfway through. And I said, Dawson, so they're 
different contexts, and you need to just think about the, that they would be said differently. So the first one is to the Cratchit family. God bless each and every one of us. But the last one is to the world at large and finishes the play, and it's got to be different. And sure enough, he remembered that line reading. I gave him a line reading. Sorry. <laughs> uh, but he invented the last one himself, which is, and God bless each and every one of us. Quite different, the Quite world different. at large. So he might have the genes, but uh, let's maybe he won't pursue it. But, uh, well, I can tell you it happens to everyone. It becomes a time for, or time of reflection. And it certainly uh, is, is, you know, the last few years for me. And I've lived... In first world countries, if that's not an offensive expression, in Australia, the UK, and Europe, and, and here, um, for, for long periods of time in each of them. And uh, that what a privilege that is to have, have, have that and such a broad spectrum of experience in, in each of those places. Um, so time for reflection and true appreciation of the encounters that I've that I've had the experiences I've had they've not all been easy of course it's easy to to see the greatest hits as as what one's life is but um, there have been hard hard times uncertain insecure times um, for a basically a shy person I'm a sh- quite a shy person um, but have have certainly been invited into an interesting world and happily accepted that invitation so they're the joys um i'm not going to become a uh soccer star i'm not going to become a, <laughs> a rock star anymore i know that uh, i probably won't win an oscar or a tony or an emmy who knows yeah, there's still time um but uh, uh how how rich it's been uh, to think back and the privilege and the glimpse of of the world of really high, great achievers and people yeah. who have left their mark. And hopefully we all do that equivalently to whatever our, our yeah. circle is. And, of course, we do it with our children and with our friends. And, and you the, keep sharing that experience. And you keep sharing, you just said, in, when, you, know, you share it with your wife, you share it with your son, yeah. you share it with your contemporaries. And so yes. reflection also brings wisdom and also you know, imparting that wisdom with others and sharing it as Sir Michael did to you yeah. and, uh, and a few others will might add along the line that we've spoken yes. about here today. So, uh, yeah. And also, like I said, um, and just tangentially too is like you share it in your everyday work too you're i mentioned you're a, you're a you know attorney and mm. so i mean i can't even tell you i mean haven't you found to be the same lot of, lot of transferable skills there you you're always dealing with complex language uh-huh. you're always dealing yeah. with some kind of storytelling uh-huh. and you know you're playing an intention trying to get what you want yes. so i mean that's acting <laughs> the, 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 you've, you've actually picked up on exactly the right thing because a lot of people think lawyering and acting are the same because you have a loud voice and you wave your arms around presenting a trial lawyering that is but right. of course that's a very superficial analysis but the similarity between the law and being a performer a theater performer or a performer is um, is what you said and also they're both they're both research subjects in a way uh, law certainly is and yeah. theater or being an actor can be enveloping 
a life or inventing a life or researching a life. Discovering a world. Discovering a world, yes, and a backstory and a forestory yeah. if there is one. But the what's most akin between the two, in my view, is that they're both arts that require utter focus and concentration. So when you're on the stage or in the film, they say action, um, utter focus and concentration, that world of the character is all that exists. And similarly, if you're doing a case, a law case as a trial lawyer, the world of that case that you're fighting for mm-hmm. is all that exists. And a senior barrister back in Australia, I remember him saying to me, we are all momentary experts, lawyers, because we get all of this knowledge, we put it into into a bath with a plug in it and fill up all of these facts and technical information as to how it happened, what happened, what the alternatives are. And at the end of the case, we pull the plug out of the bath and it all runs out. And then put the plug back in for the next case. And being an actor is the same sort of thing. You get a part, and if it's a meaty part, uh, even if it's not, you should do the same kind of work. You put the plug in and you fill up all of that knowledge in the world of the actor, the world of the play, and uh, you do your season or your your take, film take, and then at the end you pull the plug out and put it back in, ready for the next one. So that's that's a good parallel, I think, between the two. They're not necessarily in conflict. No. I think they're, they're rather in harmony. A lot of, I, in my day, when I went to law school, and this was in Australia, perhaps differently from here, but a lot of people drifted into law because they didn't want to be doctors or scientists or just do an arts degree, so they had some flair and passion and they went into law and they were they were kind of metier monke actors, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and I think it's the same. A lot of audience members of theatres are lawyers. Uh, there's a a great love of literature and yeah. and the word and the dynamics of, of people. I think so, too. I think so, too. And, um, you know, you've given us many pearls of wisdom, and I was going to ask you, because um, I, 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 I do feel that part of this podcast is a bit documentary and it's a bit also educational, and, um, you know, I was going to ask you if you had any imparting words for the, the up-and-coming generations, but I think you shared... The wonderful, um, you know, <laughs> the bathtub and the drain uh, convers- uh, imagery and the metaphor and uh, and the stories here. I think you've given a lot of people who are looking um, for a life, mm-hmm. um, either in the arts or theater or uh, or just a little bit of insight into it, a lot to chew on. Um, so I want to thank you so much for coming in and, and sharing your experience with us here today. Yeah, it's my, my pleasure, and I, I hope it's... Uh meaningful and and people can uh, see how enriching it's been been to me just to commit to something to an idea and uh, pursue it as, as much as you can and thanks for being part of our inwood community up well here too. i'm an inwoodite you are a long time <laughs> ten, 10 year inwoodite yeah uh, my my wife is a 24 year ago inwood yeah she lived just across the road from here for Absolutely. several years so yeah. You're part of you're part of the hood. You're part of the community. Uh, so, um, Jeffrey, is there anywhere we could send people? By the way, uh, on 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 the interwebs. Uh, uh, well, good heavens! Uh, 
it, it would be embarrassing. I, I occasionally subject Shane and my wife to things that are put up on YouTube. I was did this just this last week. I, right. In my early career in London, I, in fact, I think it was my first big television yeah. role, was in an Ivan Novello musical called The Dancing Years. Uh, very syrupy, Ruritanian thing, and I happened to find it on YouTube. <laughs> So day. if you Google that on YouTube, folks, uh, that's or Google and then YouTube, yeah, search that. Um, but uh, yes, you can you can see quite a lot of my stuff. You look me up online. Yeah, look him up. And if you want to hire him, you can talk him. to me. Send him an email, and I'll I'll be his agent for you know pushing him out there to you guys. If you guys want to hire him, he's available. Um, or maybe he's not, depending on how busy he is. Uh, difficult to say. Again, thank you, Jeffrey Hardy, for being here. On thank this. you, Aaron. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so this is an artist spotlight episode of In What Artworks On Air. It's where you meet the musicians, filmmakers, writers, theater makers, and artists of all stripes that make their home here in Upper Manhattan. If you have a moment, please show us some love right now by rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That really does help. Many thanks to the Church of the Good Shepherd here in Inwood for hosting us and to HideSites.com for Uptown promotional support. You can support On Air and all of our programming by making a tax-free donation to Inwood Artworks at inwoodartworks.nyc backslash donate or via Venmo at Inwood Artworks. You can follow us on social media as well at Inwood Artworks and all of our social channels to keep up all that we do, which includes the Inwood Film Festival, Filmworks Al Fresco, pop-up art galleries, live performances, and so much more. Inwood Artworks On Air is proud to be supported in part by public funds from the New York State Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Inwood Artworks programming is made possible by the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the Office of the Governor and the New York State Legislature. From the top of Manhattan and the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for tuning in. This is Aaron Sims for Inwood Artworks On Air.